Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek, the best place to buy Chicago White Sox tickets. Download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone today and save $20 off your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 9th, 2018. On this week's episode, we'll be joined by our best friend of the show, Dan Zaborski. With MLB trade talks heating up, we discuss which teams should be sellers and which teams should be buying. Also, who would receive the biggest boost by acquiring Manny Machado, and how valuable are the White Sox trade assets? Did the White Sox miss an opportunity by not trading Jose Abreu? Would James Shields help anyone? For our Patreon subscribers, Dan will share what Zips is projecting for Michael Kopech and Aloy Jimenez for the 2019 season. We'll preview the upcoming home series against the St. Louis Cardinals, cover what happened down at the farm with the minor league report, and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. The White Sox are now 30-60 and 60 on the season after they just wrapped up a 10-game road trip to Arlington, Cincinnati, and Houston where they finished 2-8 and eight and have lost five in a row. But there is some good news. Jose Abreu is an all-star starter. First time a White Sox position player has been elected since Frank Thomas in 1996. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Jose Abreu is an all-star again, and we get to reset the position player all-star starter clock. Yeah, it's uh, (laughs) in classic 2018 fashion. It's a player who could really use the all-star break off. (laughs) You you like to be somebody who's on a roll, more deserving, you know, will not 
cause any problems or negative headlines with, you know, the, the all-star snubs, flubs, and whatever, uh, which I think Abreu will be, you know, he got, voters got it wrong, and, and which is unfortunate, but, you know, given that the White Sox have had, you know, players miss the all-star game who were deserving in the past because they're not a popular team, and because Abreu's had a great career, and this just happens to be the, the lowest point of it, um, you know, having him be a two-time all-star based on his whole body of work isn't terrible. And it will most definitely help in an arbitration court this offseason. Yeah. Uh, again, he opted out of his contract to go to arbitration. So he's going to make a couple million dollars because the arbitration judges love all-star appearances. When to determine a player's salary in the following year, just look at Avisil Garcia's pay bump, but he beat the White Sox in arbitration court along with Yomer Sanchez. But Jim... I have to ask the question that a lot of White Sox fans have on their mind. And you mentioned Abreu backing into the All-Star game performance-wise. What's wrong with Jose Abreu? Seems like a few things. One is that um, you know it kind of reminds me of, I think it was two years ago, and he's just getting jammed a lot um, and jamming himself. It seems like the swing gets long and the barrel doesn't really meet the ball in front of the plate, so he doesn't drive the ball to the pole field or center field at all. It seems like it's kind of a defensive approach where the fly balls, you know, the the better struck fly balls go to right field and, and he's just rolling over a lot. So it seems like it's part that, part mechanical. Part of it seems to be pressing, perhaps because he's struggling. Um, a lot of bad swings, a lot of, um, you know, chasing pitches out of the zone. The walks really took a hit in June. They, they bounced back a little bit, but partially because he's not putting balls in play that he normally should, so there's that. And then I think also, you know, to add uh, injury to insult is that he's, you know, the ankle seems to be bothering him. He's not really moving uh, as well down the line. And, and while that, uh, you know, I can't, you know, it's, I guess it's speculation how much it's actually bothering him at the plate. can't imagine that it helps having your front ankle, um, you know, being vulnerable like that, even though he's wearing shin protection, it's just... Um, you know, he's not hundred percent. So, you know, that certainly adds to it. So I think it's kind of a three front thing. And, uh, but just, just watching him getting the sense of, um, you know, his contact and, and what kind of pitches he can punish or the lack of pitches he can punish, uh, that, that, that start that he had two years ago is what it reminds me of most. Yeah. Cause his last 30 games, Abreu's slash line is 175 with a 232 on base percentage and slugging 289. And this performance is impacting his season slash line tremendously. Abreu is now hitting 259 with a 315 on base percentage and slugging 448. This was a guy that was on pace for 60 plus doubles. So for his slash line to take a major hit like that, that's how poor Abreu has been playing really since May 27th. And that's not what we're obviously used to with Jose Abreu, Jim. Are you confident that his numbers are? will rebound in 2008 to a slash line that we're used to. His career slash line is 296 with a 353 on base percentage and slugging 515. It might be a bit lower, I think, just because this is the longest he's ever struggled. So, you know, when you have a month plus and then you have the All-Star break coming in, so it's, you know, probably be a month and a half of struggles unless he turns around this last week and having, I think, two off days um, you know, bracketing the St. Louis series, I think helps. <laughs> he probably needs an off day more than anybody who is an Avi Garcia. But, uh, you know, based on the way he's been, you know, hobbling around and such, 
I don't feel great about like a full rebound this year, but I can see him, you know, in, in late August and September uh, looking more like we're used to. I just think that, you know, maybe there just might be a bit too much, uh, I guess, negative numbers accumulated that really allows him, you know, he'd have to be on fire. I think like batting, he's done it before, like, you know, batting in the high 300s and uh, a four digit OPS over a two month stretch. And so I wouldn't rule it out, but uh, this is definitely the worst he struggled. So I'd assume that his numbers would be a little worse than we're used to, even with a rebound. And going back as far as the All-Star game, the American League roster that Abreu's with as far as the starters is stacked. The fans did a good job. They did. They did a very good job. Abreu is probably hitting eighth in this lineup, Jim, with Mookie Betts, Mike Trout, Aaron Judge in the outfield, Jose Altuve at second base, Jose Ramirez is at third base, Manny Machado's at shortstop, which that's the only one that I disagree with the fans. I thought it should be Francisco Lindor. And Wilson Ramos is the catcher. So I think Ramos would bat ninth and Abreu would bat eighth. Yeah. And then you can figure out everyone else because the, those seven hitters are tremendous. And I wish whoever is going to be on the mound for the National League. I'm assuming Max Scherzer will get to start with the game being in Washington, D.C. The best of luck because, man, that is a stacked all-star lineup that they're going to be going up against I would just feel a lot better if Abreu could catch on fire this week against St. Louis and Kansas City. But Jim, let's say even after the All-Star break, the struggles continue with Seattle and Anaheim road trips coming up after the All-Star break. And his ankle is still bugging him. Could we possibly be looking at a DL visit for Abreu to rest that ankle? I think if there's a... Yeah, you know, enough playable alternatives in his stead. I think well, right now when there really isn't anybody to take his place. I mean, maybe Matt Davidson plays first, then DH is kind of a mess, and then you have to reduce the amount of outfield depth because you're probably playing an outfielder at DH, uh, and you're already playing with a short bench. Kind of hard to do it. Um, yeah, so I guess when it comes to, you know, maybe if Elo Jimenez is up or maybe, um, you know, Nicky Delmonico is back, you know, because he, he's played some first. Um, you know, that might be a case where they have enough guys at the corner spots that, you know, Rick Renteria's bench isn't compromised and, you know, Delmonico will need at bats if he's back to understand where he is and who he is. And, you know, Daniel Palka might be in evaluation mode too. So there might be guys who get the playing time at the corner spots, but right now it's pretty thin. And uh, uh, <laughs> when you're talking about Abreu and being deserving and such, uh, Sal Perez was voted a, an alternate and he's got a 213 average and a 255 on base percentage. And uh, right now you're reading uh, Twitter and such and seeing fans complain about or, or, or players complain about, um, you know, some all-star snubs. It seems like the the players are the ones getting the heat and the bench is the, the, the battleground really for, um, you know, which votes turned out poorly. So seeing Sal Perez getting kind of on the uh, receiving end of, uh, uh, you know, this, or being on the wrong end of a, a reputation battle is pretty interesting to see. And Blake Snell, the starting pitcher for the Tampa Bay Rays, got snubbed so yeah, far. Yeah, Gene Segura, too, was another one. Yeah, it's the, the players do a worse job now than the fans. Yeah. <laughs> That's where we have come with the All-Star game, that I, I have faith in the fans making the right choices. I had, again, the only swap that I would have made in the two rosters would have been Manny Machado at shortstop. I thought Francisco Lindor should be the starting shortstop because Lindor is one of the best players in all Major League Baseball. He leads all shortstops in war. But beside the fact, I mean, this is still a very entertaining lineup that the American League has. And 
I would, if I were a betting man, I'd be betting money on the American League winning the All Star game. But uh, we'll see what happens next week. I just think that if Jose Bray didn't make the All Star game, Jim, this would be a good time to put him on the DL so he can get additional rest with that ankle. But I understand him gutting through this or grinding through this, as we are White Sox fans and we love that term, just because this is probably going to be one of the few bright spots of a horrible 2018 season for the White Sox. Again, they're 30 and 60. So if Abreu can gut it out and he can be healthy enough to play a few innings next Tuesday in the All-Star game, uh, that would be great because I know I'm going to enjoy it a lot when Abreu is part of the starting lineup and his name is announced in Washington, D.C. Yeah, the question would be, if it were an Abreu, who would be the White Sox representative? And I don't really know. Yo, Joaquin Soria? Probably. You know, Trade probably bait. Just like the token reliever, <laughs> but yeah, it just, it's, uh, you know, that's why as, you know, I guess poor a pick as Abreu is or uninspiring based on his numbers, at least he's got the reputation and some star power that it makes you understand it. Otherwise it'd be like, you know, those, those token picks like uh, I see Royals fans pointing to Mark Redman and his five ERA when he made it because he had nobody else. And at least Abreu is a bona fide star, you know, at least prior to June. Now, the Houston Astros series, the White Sox were swept. But in my opinion, Jim, they played the Astros tougher and closer than I thought. There were some ugly, ugly eighth innings in this series between the White Sox and the Astros. The Astros outscored the White Sox 29 to 14, but the White Sox had an opportunity, especially in the first game of the series against Justin Verlander. They had the lead going into the ninth inning, but Joaquin Soria blows it, his first poor outing since mid-May, and the Astros finally have recorded a walk-off win against every Major League Baseball team. Now the White Sox were last, so that's a fun fact. And in the fourth game, Lucas Giolito pitched very well, against Dallas Keuchel, and it was 1-1 to late, and the Astros were able to score the winning run on a 0-2 bunt uh, by Marwin Gonzalez to score Yuli Gurriel, and the Astros won that game and completed the sweep. Let's start with the bad news first, and the bad news is that Avisil Garcia is hurt again. He came up lame, running out a grounder, and it's the hamstring again. It's a terrible time, Jim, because Avi has been on fire. He's hit eight home runs in his last 15 games, and to me, he was looking at his best that I've seen him swing the bat. If Avi has to go back on the DL, what do the White Sox do as Eloy Jimenez is still on the mount, on the mend? I'm guessing we'd see the return of Jose Rondon, who's you know hitting with Pop and Charlotte, and at least when he's there, then you free up Larry Garcia to be an outfielder. And you don't have to worry about um, you know losing a super sub if you know, you start him or you know, have to replace him or or, or what have you. So um, I imagine that he would be the guy. Then you have um, you know some combination of Palka and uh, Tilson and Angle and Larry in the outfield and probably roll with that until the All Star break. On Sunday, Lucas Giolito was just two outs away from pitching the first complete game this season. For White Sox starters, Carlos Rodon made it eight innings, but again, that was a that was a home game, and he was just one inning away. Giolito was two outs away for the complete game loss. He finished the day pitching seven and a third innings, his longest outing of 2018 by far, with only allowing three hits, two earned runs, three walks, and three strikeouts. Much better 
than his previous start against the Cincinnati Reds, where he gave up seven runs. What do you think was working for Giolito on Sunday, Jim? Seemed like he had the two-seamer going. Um, you know, got a lot of ground balls. Did have uh, a cluster of lineouts in the middle innings where I thought he was going to lose it. He gave up the homer to Altuve on the first pitch slider, kind of hung it on the inside corner or inside half, and you know, Altuve was ready for it. Um, yeah, it wasn't. I don't think it was a get-me-over pitch in terms of intent, but it kind of turned out that way. Um, and then the three next hitters all hit you know, fairly firm line drives to all three outfielder spots, but they were caught. Um, so that's where I thought that he was going to lose it, but he found his two-seamer again. The fastball command was pretty good. Got a lot of, got, I think, 12 ground outs. So, you know, it didn't really have the swing and miss stuff, but he threw all his pitches, um, I guess, kept the Astros honest. And, you know, based on the way he's thrown and, and kind of the purpose of the season and trying to, you know, guide him through September without completely, you know, you know whether it's him or whether it's a, um, you know, circumstances kind of turning into a farce, you know, this is the kind of outing where even if it's not peripherally strong and, you know, he's not getting the swings and misses where you think that it's going to be the kind of success he can roll into the next start easily, at least it's, you know, good results that he can point to and takes the heat off everybody for a bit. Yes, and with the bullpen just gassed after this road trip, yeah. Lucas Giolito did the White Sox a real solid, especially for Rick Renteria, to get that type of start. Because if he only lasted five innings, I don't know who Renteria would have used just because it seems like everyone on the bullpen that he's calling out right now is just out of gas. And I know you mentioned that Jose Abreu is the White Sox player that needs a day off more than anyone. And I would agree with you, but a close second would be the bullpen guys. Yeah. And, you know, when you mentioned the, you know, getting swept and playing better, it's, you know, perhaps the series looks a little bit different if it opens the road trip rather than closing it, just because uh, I think uh, you with James Shields start that, you know, Renteria was pressed to try to get as much out of Shields as possible. Um, You had the, you know, various eighth inning failures, which were, you know, kind of the process a little bit of um, not having um, the optimal guys in there. So, you know, the games got out of hand because of that. But, um, yeah, they played better. And I think, you know, right now they're severely being graded on the curve because they're on pace for 108 losses. (laughs) And you know what? It's not going to be good enough for the number one pick. Wait, does that that mean they're they're hashtag 108-ing? (laughs) <laughs> i love it i love it yes the white Sox are hashtag 108 <laughs> that's terrific i love it uh we'll be talking about the race to the number one pick later in the show with dan zaborski as he shares his insight on which team right now has the inside track according to zip's projections to have the number one pick in the 2019 major league baseball draft but the last point that I have with the Houston Astros series. Omar Neves in his last 30 games, Jim, is hitting 326 with the 389 on base percentage and slugging 477. He's slugging 477 in his last 30 games, already matching his doubles and home run totals from 2017. So Narvaez is hitting a lot better. He had the home run against Justin Verlander. He cleared the bases with a double in the third game to make it a six to one game and help make it six to five before again, the eighth inning bottomed out for the white Sox and it became a laugher late, but with Narvaez hitting better, is the bat good enough to make up his poor framing and mediocre defense? 
I think so, you know, especially with the shortage of catchers. Um, you know, when you watched him play last year and you saw the framing and the, I think the blocking also has improved recently. I think uh, he was in a major defensive slump when it came to pitches getting past him, and I've noticed improvement there. So uh, I'd like to point that out too. But, you know, right now I think, you know, Narvaez is a, he's an incomplete catcher. Um, you know, his strength was getting on base and being, a tough out at the plates and not really offering a whole lot behind it, you know, being somebody who can throw the occasional guy out, but doesn't stand out. And, uh, you know, watching him the first two months, he didn't offer anything. He didn't block pitches. He didn't frame pitches. He didn't get on base. He struck out more often than usual, did not hit for power. So there's really nothing going for him. So I think, uh, some of that, um, you know, some of his upswing right now is a correction and getting back to, um, showing some pop, but you know, as we talked about with Abreu and and just how it, the barrel of the bat doesn't seem to find the ball, I think with Narvaez right now he is finding that he is, um, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's a hot streak, whether it's just you know, um, you know, because he's finding pitches to his liking and just somehow getting everything lined up to get to him, whether he's uh, you know just a, you know, just pure regression, it's uh, you know. It, there is better contact. He is making outfielders turn around and that's nice to see because uh, just, you know, before is just either hoping for a single or a walk. And when you're a lefty, you can be platooned against or be matched up against later in the game. There's only so much use. So the extra extra base hits that he's showing is kind of the development he needs to just be more than somebody who's always on the fringe of a roster. Well, that recaps as far as the Houston Astros series, the next series as the White Sox have Monday, July 9th off. Their next two games are a two-game midweek series against the St. Louis Cardinals. That's a Tuesday-Wednesday set as the St. Louis Cardinals coming to the south side. They're currently 46-43. and They're third place in the National League Central. They're seven and a half games back at the Milwaukee Brewers for first place. There is a lot of drama surrounding the St. Louis Cardinals specifically surrounding Dexter Fowler on how he and manager Mike Bethini are not getting along and evidently are not on speaking terms. Uh, so it'll be very interesting on how the St. Louis Cardinals react as Dexter Fowler should be in action for the St. Louis Cardinals as he and his wife just had a baby. So you have all this playing out. The general manager calls out Dexter Fowler's effort. He's away from the team as his wife and is having their child so I, I can't imagine what's going through Dexter Fowler's mind at the moment while this is all being laid out in the public. And it's just so unlike St. Louis to have all of this drama surrounding them. So maybe this would be beneficial for the White Sox or at least to take advantage of St. Louis and help as far as the Chicago Cubs and Milwaukee Brewers knock out another team in the divisional race. And your pitching problems for this series. Both games are at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. On Tuesday for St. Louis, it is Miles Michaelis against Dylan Covey for the White Sox. And on Wednesday, the Cardinals will have Luke Weaver against Carlos Rodon. And Jim, I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable with this series for the White Sox. I think at the very least, they can win one out of two here, maybe win both games. Again, a lot of drama surrounding St. Louis. How do you feel about this two-game series? I feel a bit better with the off day with them coming home. It seems like it does offer them a chance to reset and they can take one out of two. The other thing you mentioned, Dexter Fowler and the whole uh, Mazeliak Matheny thing. Um, I'm just checking to see if Fowler is in lineup today. He is not. But, uh, you know, given that he's coming back to Chicago and that he played with the Cubs and that, you know, he's 
a well-regarded Cub. You know, he, um, you know, I think the media liked him, the, the team liked him. I think he, you know, should have allies, and you know, having him come back to Chicago, and there will be, I think, probably Chicago baseball reporters slash Cubs reporters sniffing around the park just to kind of see if they can talk to somebody or figure out what's wrong. So I think that'll add another layer of drama to it if uh, you know the tension isn't resolved on St. Louis's side. But yeah, the the Cardinals have been just kind of in a in a weird state, and and I think you know they are seeing two of their uh, yeah, especially Michaelis, you know, getting an all-star nod. Yeah, that's a, a tough assignment. Dylan Covey struggling. So I don't like that matchup. So kind of, yeah, at least on paper, reduce it to a, uh, yeah, if, if you write off <laughs> the, although, you know, we've written off uh, games with Covey starting before, you know, the Chris Sale game. I guess that always uh, is there to say, uh, you know, you can't trust on paper matchups. But, uh, you know, I would say that the first game seems like the the much tougher assignment. But given all the, uh, crap the Cardinals are dealing with perhaps this is the time you know perhaps they'll need like kind of a purging of whether it's emotions or personnel during the Ulster break to reset so yeah it's been ugly and maybe the White Sox can take advantage of that while being bad at least they're peacefully bad yeah Cubs fans are planning a Dexter Fowler appreciation day on July 19th when the Cardinals visit Wrigley Field yeah so yeah, this is going to be really interesting. This is not going to go away for St. Louis uh, until at least in August, and maybe they have to make a roster move and move Dexter Fowler uh, to someone else that needs an outfielder if they cannot get this situation under control. And again, I, I'm we talked about this on Sox Machine Live. I am amazed that Mike Matheny is still manager of the St. Louis Cardinals and uh, it's the things that are coming out of St. Louis about how Matheny has been handling Dexter Fowler, that he will not speak with Fowler. They exchanged text messages. And this was on the Hit and Run show from 670 The Score when they had one of the St. Louis radio hosts out of St. Louis uh, on their program. I highly recommend it. Joe Ostrowski, who's on the podcast, he hosts it. Uh, take a listen to that because this drama is very familiar if you follow the 2016 White Sox season. I don't think there was any manager player issues, but that 2016 White Sox season got really derailed when there were player issues in the clubhouse. And this Cardinals team, they were your World Series pick, Jim. Uh, They're on the fringe here because if they do not get hot and if they do not make a move before the end of July, uh, they could be left in the dust with the other teams getting better in the National League. I demand heads to roll. <laughs> oh, man. Well, speaking as far as teams that should sell or buy before July 31st, coming up next, Dan Zaborski joins us to chat about that topic and also the race for the number one pick in the 2019 Major League Baseball draft. Come celebrate Lowe's first annual Spring Fest with a Charbroil Performance 5-Burner Grill was $249, now $199. And Style Selection 7-Piece Pelham Bay Dining Set was $219, now $199. Create a new dining experience this Spring Fest, a festival of fun and savings for your garden and total home, in-store or online. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. Dining set offer valid through 5-5, grill offer valid to 421, while supplies last. Selection varies by location. Patio accessories sold separately, U.S. only. Before we speak with Dan, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there's a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, 
planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way i found to shop for tickets. I'm a huge fan of their deal score, which helps me get the most bang for my buck as SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. And every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. You don't always have to print out your tickets. They can be uploaded onto the SeatGeek app, and they can scan your phone for easy access into the stadium. And I just used SeatGeek to score six tickets for this upcoming Friday's game between the White Sox and the Kansas City Royals for a great deal, $110 in Section 107. So if you're at the White Sox game on Friday, you can find me. And I got those great seats thanks to SeatGeek. And the best part is, for Sox Machine listeners, you can use SeatGeek and you get $20 off on your first purchase by using promo code SOXMACHINE. So download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com, sign up today to buy tickets, and use our promo code SOXMACHINE to save $20 off on your first purchase. Next week will be the All-Star break, which we found out last year can be a great place for baseball's general managers to get business done. That's where Rick Hahn and Theo Epstein formulated the Jose Quintana for Ayla Jimenez and Dylan Cease trade last year. The market seems primed for a flurry of moves before the July 31st deadline. And again, Rick Hahn is hoping to be active, trying to move assets like James Shields, Joaquin Soria, Xavier Cedeno, and anyone else that contending teams could be interested in. But who are the buyers in this market? And who are the fellow sellers as well? Well, to help us determine that is our best friend of the podcast. It's Dan Zaborski. And hello, Dan. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Josh. Always fun. I see I've upgraded to best friend from friend. Yeah. Uh, are we Are we going to get like one of those like, with those lockets with the broken heart and then it fits? We should now. Because nobody's ever wanted to do that with me. So it, it would be nice. It would, <laughs> it would make me feel like I'm a warmer, compassionate human being. <laughs> I'll, I'll get on that. I'll find something on Etsy. <laughs> maybe like, I'll, a, I'll maybe like a baseball that becomes like a broken baseball. And then and then there you we, go. We, we match it up and then it's like Wonder Twin Powers combine. <laughs> I love it. I'll have to find something. Uh, if the season were to end today, the White Sox would have the third pick in the 2019 Major League Baseball draft behind Baltimore. who would have the number one pick. But just wait. The Kansas City Royals are catching the Orioles. The Royals have the number two pick. But as we're recording this, the Royals are within a game of Baltimore. Looking into the Zips crystal ball, is that what Zips is projecting the top three draft order to be? Or another way to word it, these three teams will end up being the three worst teams, right? Uh, pretty much. At this point, the the rosters look pretty, pretty bleak. I think the X factor is when the Orioles actually trade Machado. Because he's like one of their few players who has actual value right now to winning games of baseball, and I think if if he if they traded him like in the next week or something, I think that make, gives the Orioles some pretty solid odds. But right now, Zips is still assuming they don't, just because I don't like to do future stuff. And in that case, uh, Zips only projects them as the third worst team by the end of the season, so it thinks that the Orioles will choke if they hang on to Machado and start winning games, uh, hmm. and you know get a worse pick. Which I'm sure Angelos and, and friends might like because they don't have to pay as much for uh, one of those <laughs> one of those 
one of those number one picks who demand millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, they might accidentally develop a farm system if they do that. You know, you can't have that. <laughs> uh, but uh, Zips is still surprised the Orioles are this bad. I mean, I can't say that the, the projections were all that exciting for the Orioles, depending on uh, assumptions. It, it had, Zips had a between winning between uh, 70 and 76 games this year. They're, they're not going to win 70 to 76 games this year. Uh, to win 70 games, they have to be uh, like 46 and 40 or 30. Yeah, 46 and 30, which, which isn't going to happen. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty bleak team. Uh, I think in the end, uh, uh, I think Zips Zip does have the Royals as being the worst team, mm. uh, which is which is sad. I'd, I'd like the Orioles to get number one pick and and be forced. They'd probably just they do a signing they do a signability pick with the number one pick probably as a fuzza. But uh, so yeah, it's it's an interesting race for the number one pick. But the Royals are favored. They've been very clutch this month. Lots of clutch sucking, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> Sometimes when when the chips are down, you need the person who's guaranteed to succeed at failing. And that's the Royals. And the Royals. And that's the Royals. <laughs> I mean, they're still playing Alcides Escobar all the time uh, for no reason. I mean, that's not a team that is afraid to lose games. Well, so obviously then the White Sox and the Orioles and Royals, they're sellers. Anyone else that you're looking at the standings – and you would say, yes, these teams should also be sellers as well. I think the Blue Jays are likely going to get to the point where they're selling. I think the Tigers are still going to listen to offers. Uh, I don't think they have any you know, burning desire to, to trade Mike Fulmer. But I, I do think they'll listen if someone decides, hey, you know, we're going to bowl you over. Uh, because Fulmer is a, is a valuable player, but he's also not an ace type. And... You can sometimes pry those guys away with the with the right offer. Uh, so I, I I'm not sure about the Mets. They're probably not going to sell. Uh, the Rangers, of course, are are going to sell whatever they can get fairly aggressively. Uh, what what I'm most interested in is where the Angels are because the Angels have slipped to the point where they're now four games behind the A's. Even uh, they're 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 twelve behind the Mariners and. It's 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 about the same behind the Yankees uh, or the you know the Yankees Red Sox loser, but the problem with the Mariners is even if you don't believe they're for real, and I don't really believe they're a fifty six and thirty two team, but the thing is when you're ten games over your Pythagorean for half a season, they don't take those wins away from you. You'd be expected to match your Pythagorean there on out, not fall magically short and and compensate for the excess those 10 wins or nine wins or whatever it is right now those wins are baked into the cake essentially mm-hmm. you, you can't unbake a cake you, you just make a mess uh if they go if they go 37 and 37 the rest of the way uh then they win 94 games it's like 93 wow. 94 games just going 500 and so even if you believe the Mariners are 500 team that's where they're going to end up and they probably are a little above 500 just ability wise, but when the Angels are that far back, they have to make up 12 games in half a, less than half a year now. That's like a 25 win a year pace over what the over what the Mariners will do, and they have to beat the A's too. So I think the Angels really could actually end up doing some selling. Uh, I think they did a great job last off season, but I can see them being sellers now. Uh, but of course, that depends on ownership, how psychologically able they are to do that, et cetera, et cetera, yada yada. 
Yeah, because the Washington Nationals are in a similar spot as the Angels. However, they're just six games back of the Braves. Yeah. And they're five games back of the Phillies. So they're at least within striking distance. Yeah, having an actual playoff path is even more important than being better than 500. And, of course, the Nats are hovering around 500. And, it I mean, it's been a disappointing season for them because they kind of hoped they had that one more Harper season where they could kind of – uh, win the division fairly easily before the Braves and the Phillies really completed their rebuild. But obviously that hasn't happened, so now they're in a tough situation. Because time right now is the is the enemy of the Nationals. The Phillies and Braves, their rosters are only going to get stronger over the next several seasons. Uh, so it, it puts Washington in a quandary that I, I think they do have to still go for it simply because there isn't really much of a future there. Uh, most of their assets hit free agency in the next couple seasons. Uh, but I, I, I think they will have to go all in. But who knows? If, if they're if, – say they're 12 games out in three weeks, it, it's hard to do that. It might just – they might have to actually trade Harper if they don't have a real hope of signing him, which is, which is interesting. That is very interesting. They would probably, but it's, it's fun to think about. Been reading that the Minnesota Twins look like that they may also be selling before the deadline. I think they will too. I think the Twins will. Uh, they have a, they're, they're, they've really upgraded their organization. I think if you went back a few years uh, to when they had more of an old school, you know, all the various Terry Ryan, Bill Smith seasons, I, I think they'd be less likely to sell. But they will sell this year. You, you look what they did last year when they uh, when they picked up. Uh, um, uh, uh, Garcia uh, when they took Garcia and then they flipped him like a week later uh, and I don't think the old twins would have done that I think that they that they do see re- realistically where they are uh, there's some questions in the organization Dozier hasn't played all that well in his walk year uh, next time someone goes everybody has a great year in their free agent year remember Brian Dozier <laughs> uh, uh, Sano and, and, and uh, Buxton have been disappointing uh, so I, I could see them listening to offers. Uh, obviously, Lance Lynn would have been a, a, a player you dangle if he was dangleable, but he's got like a whip of like 1.7, and so, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the Twins are the most disappointing team so far just because I was expecting – I wasn't expecting them to win the division, Dan, but I was expecting them to play a lot better, maybe at the level that the Oakland A's are playing yeah. at. That's where I thought the Twins would be. And they'd be right on the heels of the Indians. but I did too. I just think they've blown a golden opportunity, especially all the momentum they gained last year with the turnaround they had from the 2016 season. Yeah, I I, I think that too. And maybe, maybe you and I are both dumb, but I'm not going to fault you for having the same kind of thinking I did because there are a lot of guys. Yeah, Eddie Rosario is playing better than you'd expect, but they have a lot of players just playing a lot worse. Maurer and Dozier and right. – and, and, the aforementioned Sano, Sano and Buxton and, and Robbie Grossman isn't an on-base god this year. And, and Logan Morrison is would be noted for having a poor season if Chris Davis wasn't, like, lapping him in that. <laughs> uh, I mean, they've gotten good seasons for some of their pitching. Jose Barrios, Kyle, Kyle Gibson, uh, they, they've been very good. Uh, but we kind of expected Barrios to be solid. Uh, he was solid last year. Uh, and he's kind of about in the same level. So I, I think the Twins are disappointed, but they I don't think it was a deluded hope that they came into the season with a reasonable shot, you know, to win 83, 84, 85, 86 games, depending on how the breaks went. Uh, the breaks have generally gone a little against them this year, but, you know, they're, they're going to be better next year. But there's no reason for them to, to fetishize trying to compete in 2018. 
For me, it's important to know who also is going to be selling because Rick Hahn is going to be competing with those front offices, Dan, to try to move and move some players. Obviously, the talent level is nowhere near the same that he had last year in trying to move players. Yeah. <laughs> but we've been discussing this for the past couple of weeks. Do you think that James Shields and Joaquin Soria <laughs> can help a contender? Uh, 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 Soria, yeah. Soria could definitely help a contender. Uh, I... He was essentially acquired for this purpose. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they'll say, oh, you know, he makes our bullpen deeper. Like, no, you, you, you're, you're hoping to flip him. You're like one of those house flipping shows on, on one of the secondary cable channels where they buy a house and they flip it in a better market. That, that, that's what Saria was for. Uh, Shields, of course, you know, everyone knows they, they acquired him in a, a trade that's not looking too good uh, because of a certain – uh, second generation players emergence, which I won't say the name so that Thank I don't, you. you know, rub the salt in the wound. Uh, they they hired they, they they didn't hire him. They 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 acquired him with the, with the with the hope of you know short term competing in, in 2016, and obviously that blew up tremendously. But he's actually been not terrible this year, and I know that that sounds kind of mean to say it in that way but i mean he has to be great but he's not giving up a billion home runs this time he's actually probably on track to have one of his best home run giving up seasons since his good days uh i don't know if that's really a a a, a phrase best homer not giving up season <laughs> uh his best home run his most home run resistant year there we go that's better uh so if you're a team that has a really poor b- bottom of the rotation and kind of just needs someone to paper that over a little and not demand that much. Because obviously, there's there's no top 100 prospect going for James Shields. Uh, it's it's a little like uh, the uh, the trade that the um, that the Braves made a few years ago uh, with Travis Demerit, and I can't remember the name of the player, the pitcher's name. He's he was a White Sox too at one point. Uh, Javier Vasquez. No, no. Uh, Oh, I need to pick up my keyboard and find. Why am? Sorry, I'm I'm getting old. Uh, <laughs> Lucas Harrell. Oh God, yes, Lucas Harrell. Yeah, but I mean, they actually got an actual body for Lucas Harrell, uh, which of course was amazing, and that was after you know four not very good starts in Texas, and Shields is having a better season than that, so it is possible. Uh, yeah, I don't know why I couldn't remember Lucas Harrell's name, but well, now I do. There's a lot of reasons why not to remember Lucas Harrell's name. <laughs> uh, a popular debate or idea that's been passed around Chicago media is that Tyler Chatwood has a walk issue. And from Kevin Powell, WGN, he's been on our show, good friend of the show. He threw out the idea, well, Cubs fans, if you want a better number five starter – why don't the Cubs go get James Shields and reunite him with Joe Madden and the pitching coach, uh, Jim Hickey? It's not actually a bad idea. Because, uh, yeah, Chatwood has been. It's weird. Chatwood's been hard. It's like he's turned like home runs that he would normally allow into walks somehow. <laughs> he's still. It's like he's hard to hit this year because everything's out. I. I I don't know. He's actually survived somehow with almost a walk an inning, which is pretty impressive on, on some level. You have to respect that. 
to actually have an ERA not that far worse than not that far below league average while walking a guy in inning. You have to say, yeah, you know, I got to respect that. Yeah, that's true. That's impressive. Another White Sox player that we'll see if his name gets tossed around. But you've been stumping for the White Sox to move Jose Abreu. I have. Yeah, I, I've always been less optimistic they actually would do that because right. they have reasons not to move him and they have reasons to move him. Uh, I actually think that they – I think they missed uh, the, the, the probably the chance to get the most from him. So now I'm actually a little less sanguine about their chances of moving him because he had he, – he's been struggling lately. Uh, his, yes. his seasonal numbers are down. I don't think really they'd probably get that much for him at this point. Uh, certainly not as much as they had traded him last offseason. And I know that they have reasons for keeping him around. He's a he's a leader to the younger players, uh, especially like Mankata. Uh, I, I, I get all that, though I, I, I still feel that they should have traded him this winter, especially, you know, with teams going after Eric Hosmer. I thought that was the kind of market where, you know, people are going to pay – a lot of money for Eric Hosmer. Maybe we should give them a less expensive, shorter-term option. Uh, I, I don't know what the chances are. That that those chances have dropped considerably. I think. Well, when you have reports now from like John Morosi, who's reporting that the New York Yankees have interest in Mike Mustakis, not helping them at third base, but moving him across the diamond. Do you think that maybe the White Sox should push Jose Bray a little bit more in the market? If you have teams like the Yankees possibly dabbling in the Mike Bistakis for first baseman market. I, I, I do think they, they should because the Yankees, they don't really want the upside this year. They want some certainty. Uh, now, maybe Jose Abreu's ceiling has gone down a little because, I mean, he's on the wrong side of 30. He's, he's, he's pretty much having his worst season in the majors overall. Uh, but they, they've, they've been playing a lot of Neil Walker at first base. Uh, Greg Bird's health is always kind of, you know, eh. uh, and and I, I think the Yankees are more interested in someone who can be okay and not terrible, which which Abreu can obviously be, uh, with, and not so much needing someone that will, you know, be a superstar, which is why they're talking about Mustakas. He's not going to be really an above-average first baseman, but he'll be okay. Uh, I mean, we we've seen teams succeed go pretty deep in that playoffs which is an okay first baseman uh like the cleveland indians uh they the when you look back at at the 2000 at the 2016 indians they, they didn't have a great first baseman they had mike napoli who was okay and just not terrible and i think the yankees are interested in that and and abreu gives them an interesting option for next season as well so flipping over from who should be selling to who should be buying who should we be seriously considering as buyers before the July 31st deadline, Dan? Well, the Nats certainly should be. Uh, I don't think there's any question there. They're, they're in. They're where the Tigers were a few years ago. They need to roll the dice and push. Uh, I think a few teams need to decide where they are. Uh, I mean, we keep waiting for the Rockies to do something like that. Uh, I mean, Abreu would be a great fit with the Rockies, uh, if you think about it, because, okay – an okay first baseman, and Jose Abreu can be better than that. He was way better than okay before this year. This year, he's just okay. But an okay first baseman would be a tremendous upgrade for Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they've been playing Ian Desmond, and, and Ian Desmond's hot month has only gotten him up nearly to replacement level. He's still like like a, like half a win below or something. 
they they need a first baseman. Really, they need they need a lot of things on the offense. But uh, that's that's a, that that's a tale for another podcast, I think. But <laughs> I, I could see, I could see that if the Rockies were well run, they'd be interested in Abreu. Okay. So yeah, that that's another place I'd like to see them. I think the Cardinals should be looking to pick up another bullpen arm, but something lower key. Uh, I think they have a little tricky. The whole Dexter Fowler thing is a little tricky in that they have good reason to think he's better than this, but at some point they need him to play better than this. So that that's one of their X factors. They could that's not 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 necessarily a great fit for the White Sox in trade, but just generally speaking, in a more overall forest look at baseball, I think that that they need to be looking at upgrades also. What about teams like the Oakland Athletics and the Los Angeles Dodgers? Do you see those two teams making a move? Uh, I think the Dodgers. Well, the Dodgers are a very they, they'll take advantage of things as as they see. They're not they don't usually play it too safe. Uh, currently, the, the hardest part with LA is getting to the part with their best best prospects. They do try to hang them on. The Yankees have done that pretty well too in recent years, where they picked up you know Gray and others without having to actually give up uh, the, the the crown jewels, so to speak. Uh, I, I know the Whites are. I mean, the Dodgers would like probably another infield upgrade. Uh, I, I I could see them uh, returning Chris Taylor to the outfield for the rest of the season and kind of shuffle that. But they're a lot in a lot less desperate situation than they were a m- month and a half ago. Uh, thanks to the Diamondbacks slumping in May. I guess we're talking two months ago now. Uh, Diamondbacks slumping in May. Colorado not really ever taking control of the situation. The Dodgers, of course. I believe they're tied for first place right now. I think they're ahead on winning percentage. I don't have it in front of me, but uh, I, I think the Dodgers are going to be opportunistic. And the Milwaukee Brewers. Do you think the Milwaukee Brewers make a big splash? Because they decided not to get Jose Quintana last trade uh, season, and obviously they fell out of the playoff race just because they didn't have enough starting pitching to help them get to the finish line. Do you think that's different in 2018? Uh, I, I think they are going to be on the lookout. I don't think they're going to make a major splash. I would expect the team to make more, say, moderate splashes. You know, instead of instead of the cannonball in the pool, you know, the polite dive that's not really Olympic quality but does make a decent splash. Uh, I, I think they still want to keep their crown jewels. And the Brewers' uh, model for contending does not include them – emptying out the farm system, so to speak. They, it's hard for them to compete long-term that way. Uh, but I do think that they will look for probably lower-key moves. Uh, maybe maybe they could be a home for Shields. Probably not, but who knows. Manny Machado. Uh, who needs Manny Machado the most? And which team would Manny Machado be the biggest upgrade for? Uh, I think the Dodgers would do really well with Manny Machado. It's just not as... Uh, obviously, Chris Taylor has been playing well, but... I don't. I don't think that it's a situation where he has been, uh, where where he can't move elsewhere. I mean, they've been they've been pretty open to moving Chris Taylor all over the place as as the need arises. Uh, I, I so I can see them. But the the thing is about Manny Machado is his value is a little lower for a few reasons. One, the Orioles are a little hard to deal with, and I think that scares some people off. I know everyone will talk to anyone at any time, but you know. Teams have a certain amount of effort and time and energy that they can put into pursuing opportunities. And the Orioles just aren't a good trade partner because they're not real, real, realistic. To, to put it in a meaner way, the Orioles don't 
know how players are valued around baseball, let's just say. <laughs> uh, I think they had a dream of getting like a Chris Sale type package, which was never going to happen. Uh, I think they're, I mean, there have been reports that the Dodgers have given them, you know, a Verdugo and Alvarez offer, which would be, which if, the, if that was really offered, the Orioles are idiots for not just saying yes, quickly doing it before the ink is signed, because that's, that's better than I think they're going to get. I think they're, Otherwise, would end up with more like a J.D. Martinez trade. We think they get good prospects, but nothing super exciting. They're not going to refill the farm system from trading two, three months of Manny Machado. That just doesn't happen that often anymore. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, he could help the Diamondbacks, but I don't know if they'll make a splash. Uh, obviously, there's less realistic options like the Pirates, who he, he'd probably be interesting on, but probably they're not going to pay that much for him uh the phillies maybe if 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 he doesn't if he phillies would be a lot of fun uh machado would have to be cooperative about playing third base the rest of the season uh but 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 franco has not been that good his defense is lousy he's not making it up with his bat it, it would be a lot of fun to see uh machado at the hot corner for the phillies uh and the other the other thing that kind of hurts his value a little is that he isn't really playing very well at shortstop this year. I was more hopeful going into the season that he'd be a better shortstop than he's been because when he was called into June into service when, when G.A.J. Hardy was injured a couple years ago, and he acquitted himself very well uh, at that mm-hmm. point. But this season, he just hasn't been that good, and he's had a, the decline, at least in stats stat speaking, are, has been much steeper than you'd expect from a third baseman of his quality. I mean, he's been a plus 20, plus 30 run uh, third baseman, you don't expect those guys to become negative 10 shortstops. Now, of course, right. there's always the small sample of defensive stats, and he doesn't look that bad out there. He doesn't look like he's Hanley Ramirez out there. Uh, Hanley Ramirez, when he played shortstop, not Hanley Ramirez now, who'd be probably really, really bad at, at short. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that taking the shortstop excitement out of the picture probably also reduces his trade value. It's interesting. Uh, I... What I have a couple of fears because, I mean, it's hard for me to, like, actively root for the Orioles right now under their current ownership. But I can't – it's still too programmed in me that I don't want their future to be bright. And and the fears mm-hmm. I get from the Orioles with Machado is, one, that they just decide they're not, they're not getting the package they want and just, you know, impudently hold on him and say, we're just going to give him a – qualifying offer at the end of the season, and we, we could be terrible. But the other kind of thing that scares me about a Machado trade is if they want to trade him for more major league-ready talent. Uh, we, we, we were joking uh, about, half joking, half being terrified uh, about, <laughs> say, say the Orioles trade Machado to the Diamondbacks because they were talking about Duplantier and, and uh, Machado. Yep. But could... You could kind of see what if the what if Machado is traded for Nick Ahmed and a prospect because Ahmed is a major league player now and can help them win over the next two years. That of course is an extremely deluded argument that you had to be an insane person <laughs> who doesn't quite understand how baseball analysis works to to like that line. But that's kind of how I evaluate right. most of the Orioles front office. It's kind of sad. They do have an analytics department with smart people. I just have no belief from from my 
My discussions behind the scene and with other writers, I have no belief that they actually use any of the things they produce, which is kind of sad. It is, uh, it is sad. That it doesn't really affect their decision-making at the top, uh, which, which is de- depressing for them, too. I'm, I'm rooting for July 31st to be over. It's just kind of, you know, find out what happens. If it's terrible, it's terrible, but I don't have to worry about it anymore. You can follow Dan on Twitter. He's at DZaborski, and he hosts a weekly chat with fans on Fangraphs.com, which you want to go to on Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. 2 p.m. Oh, Central Time, yeah. Sorry, I forget. I have East Coast bias. Yeah, you do. Yeah. 1 p.m. Central Time for us in Chicago. As Dan has some breaking news to share, but he'll wait until then. So again, Monday. Yeah, I, sorry, I like. I, I'm very good at interrupting too. I know it's it's a habit I need to get out of. No, I have I have I have some career announcements to make on Monday. Yes, which I will be doing. He is running for president in 2020. Oh God, no, 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 <laughs> no. Nobody wants. I don't want that. None of you want that. Nobody wants President Zimborski. <laughs> Nobody wants. Supreme Court Justice Zaborski. These are things that nobody wants. So don't even joke. <laughs> Again, go to fangraphs.com 1 p.m. on Monday. Again, that's 1 p.m. Central Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, as Dan has some breaking news to share. And Dan, as always, thanks for coming on the show. Always fun, Josh. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Meyer League Report. The Futures game rosters were released this week, and the White Sox will be sending two players to Washington during the All-Star break, Dylan Cease for the U.S. side, and Luis Alexander Basabe for the world team. As for our tour through the farm system, let's start in Charlotte, where Spencer Adams is trying to establish himself as a viable candidate for a Major League audition at some point. In his first five starts at AAA, Adams has thrown four quality starts, including seven shutout innings against Gwinnett his last time out. He has a 2.97 ERA over his first 33 and a third innings. Peripherals are still an issue. He struck out just 18 batters, but he's averaging better than six innings a night, which is a fine opening salvo. Michael Kopech is still battling control lapses during his starts, with his walks tending to cluster in one bad inning. Carson Fulmer has just been bad, and Jordan Stevens more ordinary as of late. In Birmingham, Alec Hansen finally posted his first strong start of 2018. He held the Mississippi Braves to one run on four hits and a walk over six innings on Sunday, striking out five. He'd walked 11 batters over seven and two-thirds innings between his last two starts, and this effort merely lowered his ERA to 6.04, so Sunday night was merely a step in the right direction. Hansen could help the Barons' starting pitching become a strength even with Dane Dunning out, because Dylan Cease has 23 strikeouts over his first 17 innings, and Bernardo Flores has a 1.78 ERA through three starts, averaging six and two-thirds innings and outing. The Barons' offense has been on the quiet side, even with Nicky Delmonico beginning a rehab stint to double-A. Zach Collins is just a 7.45 OPS since the All-Star break, with his last multi-hit game coming on June 22nd. Joel Booker has cooled off after his loud start, and Basabe and Alex Call are still searching for their grooves in double-A. The Winston-Salem Dash are still cruising, owners of a 12-5 record in the second half. Luis Gonzalez and Laz Rivera have introduced themselves gracefully to advanced A-ball, although Gonzalez has won for his last 16. Taekwon Forbes is getting hot again, starting his July by going 10 for 24 with a homer, double, and just one strikeout. He's hitting 292 with a 337 OBP and 424 slugging during his age 21 season, so his hit tool has progressed nicely this year. Blake Rutherford also bounced back well from toppling over the short right field wall at BB&T Ballpark on the 4th of July. He missed a game, but came back to go 5 for 10 over the weekend. He's now hitting 299. 
The pitching staff is short on name-brand prospects, but Blake Battenfield and John Park have held their own over three starts. Kannapolis is awaiting the arrival of Nick Madrigal, but Andrew Perez became the first 2018 draft pick to join the Intimidators. The lefty reliever, an eighth-round draft pick who was South Florida's closer, jumped to A-ball this week after making easy work of Pioneer League hitters at Great Falls. He's thrown four scoreless innings over his first two outings in the Sally League, allowing four base runners while striking out three. Great Falls is 13-10, with middle-of-the-pack pitching and hitting. The AZL White Sox have just two homers over their first 16 games, one from Luis Mieses and one from Lenzi Delgado, but $300,000 Cuban signing Camilo Quintero has offset some of that by leading the AZL with a 5-14 OBP. He has 17 hits and 17 walks over 16 games. Madrigal has played just one game for the AZL White Sox, grounding out around two plunkings on Thursday. He was supposed to play two games in Arizona before heading to North Carolina on Sunday. Instead, Sean Williams of Future Sox says Madrigal is still with the AZL team, but he hasn't been in any of the lineups in any of the weekend games, so who knows? That's it for the minor league report. Now we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show, where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting your questions to us at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Machine or helping support the show and the website by becoming a friend of the podcast by signing up at patreon.com slash machine And rejoining me on the podcast is Jim Margulis. And Jim, the first question that we have in the mailbag comes from AJ Krimbos. And AJ's asking, how does the Astros 100 loss roster compare to today's murderer's row? Well, looking back through the baseball reference pages for the Astros trying to figure out where their rebuild officially began. 2010 was like the equivalent of the 2016 White Sox last year with veterans of positions. They won 76 games with Hunter Pence and Carlos Lee and Lance Berkman and Roy Oswalt. So 2011 seemed like the first rebuilding year and 2012 team, yeah, the Astros 2012 team is probably parallel to where the 2018 White Sox are. That Astros team had Lucas Harrell leading the team in innings uh, Dallas Keuchel was the only member of the pitching staff who was there, uh, or at least the only member of the good Astros pitching staff. He had a 5.27 ERA. It was Jose Altuve's first full season. He looked ordinary, you know, one of two wins above replacement. You know, average bat, above average speed. Metrics didn't like his defense. They went 56 and 106. Uh, 2013 was basically the same. No big additions. A uh, step back from Altuve. Keuchel was still bad. They lost 111 games. When you look at the way the White Sox are, and you think, at least, you know, optimistically, they have more of their um, rebuild pieces in place already with, you know, Moncada and Anderson and Lopez and Giolito. Uh, you have Jimenez on the horizon. You have Kopech on the horizon. You know, you have, um, you know, a few more positions settled. Uh, and Yolmer Sanchez seems like somebody who can be around if they want him to. Uh, you know, depending on, you know, what happens with Abreu and Avi, you know, theoretically they could be extended or let go. But, you know, it seems like there are more players in place. The team is younger. The team has more upside. So if you look at, you know, I guess if you compare the Astros to the White Sox and try to project them going forward, it looks like the uh, the Astros, their core players didn't seize jobs until 2015. 
And, and that's when they went 86 and 76 and they won the wild card and got into the second round of the postseason. That puts the White Sox basically in you know, ready to contend in 2021. And I think they can beat that, but I think 2020 to 2021, if you give the White Sox a bit of a head start and you know, allow them 2019 to still have to sort through players and allow players to graduate, I, I think uh, they're just slightly ahead of where the Astros were and being able to push that window up. Yeah, how do you feel about lately teams, I guess, starting to win a year earlier than expected? Another team that people are pointing to are the Philadelphia Phillies, and I think a lot of that is because they did make some big transactions, right, with Jake Arrieta and Carlos Santana, uh, but both of those players obviously are not having all-star type of seasons, and in the bulk of the Phillies' success has been their prospects. Same team with the Atlanta Braves, who lead the National League East and have one of the best records in the National League. And the Milwaukee Brewers, yes, Christian Yelich helps. And Lorenzo Cain also, who's been a little bit banged up. Uh, But the Milwaukee Brewers are getting a ton of production from their in-house talent. And it seems like they've gotten a jump a year earlier than a lot of people were expecting them to be good. Do you think that could fit for the White Sox and bring some optimism maybe as soon as, what, the second half of 2019? Yeah, I think it, um, you know, right now I don't see that, but uh, uh, the Phillies I don't think are quite a parallel because I think they picked in the top five, five years in a row. So I think it came to the point where they were tired of picking in the top five and also they had a sense of where their prospect depth was and, you know, who they were going to be blocking and and where they could invest with and get a couple good years out of without, you know, um, you know, losing prospect value. So I think they're not quite a match there. And then the Brewers, I think, you know, they're a, um, you yeah, know, I would say that they're kind of a, a testament for not tearing it down all the way. They didn't do the full whole, uh, you know, wholesale rebuild and, and, and trading all their valuable players. They tried to trade Ryan Braun, but they couldn't, but otherwise they've gotten by on, you know, smaller deals, uh, you know, dealing who it makes sense to uh, based on who they can't use, but not, um, you know, tearing it down. And, you know, they've done a lot by, you know, drafting well and, um, you know, a couple of good trades and also the international market and, and the, I guess, um, you know, with Eric, uh, Eric Thames. And then you had, um, you know, Junior Guerra from the uh, White Sox, you know, Jesus uh, Aguilar from, uh, you know, they, they, kind of dusted him off and they've gotten surprising production from older guys, uh, older non-prospects um, who were available for cheap. And so I think, you know, that's something for the White Sox to keep in mind that they can add and they can try to add interesting guys, maybe from off the radar. And, and you know, you know, there's a low success rate. They're kind of like high risk, low reward. And it's usually, or, or sorry, uh, high reward, low risk. And usually the reward isn't there and you just kind of churn through these guys. But, you know, as the Brewers show, sometimes these guys stick. So, they're not perfect parallels, but I think they're probably closer to the Brewers at this point. And that, um, in you know, the Cardinals too, with uh, Miles Michaelis, you know, being a guy who they got from Japan, I think, you know, that might be where they try to add next year. Maybe not, you know, the uh, second tier of Major League free agents, but maybe guys who are looking for a second act in the states, or uh, maybe guys who have been blocked elsewhere, but you know, have some Major League skills in one way or another. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because after watching this Astros series to kind of come full circle with the show, Jim, I really like Colin McHugh. I know he's a little bit on the older side. He still has two years of control after the 2018 season. He doesn't become a free agent until after 2020. Yes, he is 31 years old, but he's been pitching out of the bullpen just because that Astros rotation is stacked. 
I would think that would be a good target for the White Sox in the offseason because if you're drawing up the 2019 roster at the moment, you're looking at a starting rotation of Carlos Rodon, Lucas Giolito, Ronaldo Lopez, and then choose between Michael Kopech and Jordan Stevens. You're going with a lot of unproven guys that haven't proved they can pitch a complete season. The White Sox may need to go acquire a veteran starter just to help get through a marathon season. And after this series, watching him dominate out of the bullpen against the White Sox uh, and how terrific he has been out of the bullpen, but I still think he can still be a starter. Uh, Colin McHugh, I'm putting it on my wish list on July 9th, uh, heading to 2019 season. Uh, But it it is a great question, AJ, to to bring it up because it is nice to just take a step back, look at how other teams have progressed, especially a team as successful uh, as the Houston Astros. Uh, So, AJ, thank you so much for your question. Our next question in the mailbag comes from Stryker. And Stryker is asking Jim, whose trade value is higher, Avisil Garcia's or Jose Abreu's? Well, I think it depends. Um, I guess I'll... Hold off on my final answer, or I guess I'll allow it to be amended if it turns out that Avi's hamstring is really day to day. You know, based on the way he'd been moving around before the game. Um, you know, we talked about it before that I just thought he was being cautious about his starting and stopping. His acceleration wasn't what we're used to. wasn't the running bases the way we saw him run it. So it seemed like he was still either favoring it or guarding it. And, you know, now that he's busting it down the line the way he instinctively does um, and it acted up on him, you know, I'm skeptical that it is day-to-day and he might require another DL stint. And if it's something that's going to bother him for a while, then I think, you know, by default, Abreu has the higher trade value just because they're both free agents after the end of the 2019 season. And so, you know, uh, just by default, you're acquiring them to produce now and, by Abreu being healthy, uh, at least healthier, you know, healthy enough to be active and playing, he would be the guy. But I think if, you know, Avi were healthy and didn't stand a good chance of going back in the DL, um, you know, it's a far more interesting question. And um, I think it might be Avi just because um, he doesn't have the track record. He doesn't have the, um, well, I guess teams might might be asking about him more just because he's being paid less, doesn't have the track records. So they might be able to ask a lower price. He doesn't have his importance to the White Sox culture. So, you know, he might be more disposable. So it seems like, you know, he might be the guy teams ask about more. Um, and, and given that the White Sox haven't received what they think is fair value for Abreu in talks, even with Abreu coming off a good season and being more of a stable, uh, you know, being more of a, a stable trade candidate and just an MLB profile, it seems like Avi might be the one that uh, fluctuates more and, and might be more of an upswing based on the way he was pounding the ball before the injury. Thank you, Stryker, for your question. Our next question in P.O. Sox comes from John from Patreon. And John is asking, do you believe the number of prospect injuries this year will have an impact on the White Sox offseason plans? Great question, John. I think it does, um, at, at least when it comes to adding, you know, major league players who aren't elite. You know, like say, you know, and, and we'll only use Manny Machado as an exercise, but say if the White Sox were somehow in position to acquire Machado, I think it's, you know, it, they do it because he, you know, projects to add value for years and years. He does it at third base, you know, assuming they could get him to play third base. He's uh, one of the best defenders at third base. He's one of the best hitters at third base. He's just a guy who, you know, you can build around for 
three, at least three or four years out. So I think, you know, he's a guy you'd add no matter what. Um, but I think when it comes to the second tier guys, the guys here, you might think like say AJ Pollock or something like that, who's good when he's healthy, but might not be healthy. And, you know, injuries might take a toll on him. Not sure how healthy you can keep him. And given the White Sox injuries of late, I don't think you can count on Herb Schneider having the answer for guys the way you might, you know, have counted on it in the past. Um, then I, I think it makes it harder to buy just because when you have injuries like Alec Hansen, he just had a nice start, but he's this year has not been, you know, so far, you, if you had to decide now, it would be a it'd be a waste kind of, and you just have to write it off and, and look towards 2019. Dane Dunning being hurt. Uh, with Hansen and Dunning, I think that just hurts the MLB-ready pitching depth that they might have counted on in 2019 at some point. Um, you know, they still might be ready theoretically by the second half, um, you know, they're talented enough and Dunning was pitching well enough to where, uh, you know, he might be able to come back and be on that same timetable, but you can't count on it the way you might've had they had full productive seasons in the way you might've added, or, you know, it might've factored that into adding for the 2019 team. And then when you, you know, look elsewhere, like say with, um, you know, Luis Robert and Jake Berger, um, you know, if, if you're counting on Robert to be a fast riser and Berger to be a fast riser, you know, you know, Berger has been out of commission all season. Robert just hasn't proven he can stay healthy. And so this year is really not going to, at the end of the year, I still don't think you're going to have a timetable for him. So I think, uh, you know, when you add in all those guys who were representing, say the second wave of talent, or maybe the third wave, um, in, in Robert and Berger's case, not having firm timetables for any of them. It just makes it really harder, you know, I would say, to add anybody with a significant salary um, with the idea of building a cohesive team for 2020 and 2021. I still don't think you exactly know who's going to be there when the White Sox are trying to contend in those years. Okay, so with you saying that, how should fans react to that comment, Jim, and still have hope that this team can be competitive in 2020, 2021. Is it all about that? These prospects one have to be healthy, obviously in 2019, um, but produce at a level in 2019 that you can expect them to be ready for a major league regular season workload as a starter in 2020. Well, you know, I, I guess it depends on, you know, I guess, what do you think the predominant fan attitude is? And I've been surprised by how patient White Sox fans have been. And, and um, you know, when I know when I express frustration about just how um, incompetent the team has <laughs> seemed at times and just the mistakes they're making. And, you know, I'm surprised by the amount of responses I get saying, you know, were you really surprised? It's supposed to be a bad team. They're they're losing on purpose. It's great traffic, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it might be the case where if it's not Manny Machado, and even if it is Manny Machado, fans might be conditioned to not add. So um, uh, I think when it comes to the reception I saw at SoxFest and the comments I've heard throughout, I think fans are still on the patient side, and I don't think they'll be looking to spend um, for spending sake or, or adding talent for adding sake, which I think is a little bit dangerous at times just to assume uh, you know, when you see a situation like the twins are seeing the Phillies lose for longer than they thought and, and so forth. I think there is a danger of being too complacent, being too trusting in what the front office is doing and the ability to matriculate prospects all the way to the top. But I think for the time being, if um, you get to the end of the year and you're still not confident in Dunning and, and, and Hanson being around for that 2019 second half, 2019 rotation, 
uh, I can see fans being patient for one more year. If we, a year from now, are talking about a 30 and 60 White Sox team in 2019, Jim, I think the tide will turn. Yeah, I think that's worse than. Uh, I, I think that's when you can, yeah, I guess, uh, officially cross off the White Sox being ahead of schedule if that's the case. I thought the fans that were hoping that this would be a year that could contend for the wild card, I thought they were a little too optimistic. But then again, I look at my preseason 73 and 89 <laughs> prediction, and hell, uh, they're not even going to get close to that. So maybe I was way too optimistic on the White Sox this season uh, as far as showing progression. But yeah, I mean, from a year from now, if the White Sox are 30 and 60, I think that patience is going to run out. Because then for the 2019 free agency, I think White Sox are expecting, because we had this in the poll, and the vast majority with 600 submissions from White Sox fans don't believe the White Sox are going to spend this year. But if you do believe the White Sox are going to be a playoff contender in 2020, then they're going to have to spend some money in 2019 to patch up the holes on areas that you know that the roster just can't fill out because of the lack of talent or maybe lack of options. Uh, But if they're 30 and 60 again next year, uh, it's going to be really hard to convince free agents to come play on the South side um, when the team's been playing horribly. So yeah, we'll see. (laughs) One thing I've been been rolling around my head is that with Bryce Harper struggling in the talk of him accepting a one-year contract, I would be down for a one-year Bryce Harper contract. Hell yeah, let's do it. That would be it could be stupid, it, could, it would be fun. <laughs> let's do it. Yes, 1 year, 40 million dollars. Yep. Make it happen, Jerry. Make it happen. Uh sidebar. Something that's been very interesting to me. I know we had NBA chat last week. But the way that Bulls fans are concerned about how this offseason is going, and the Bulls are also a rebuilding franchise owned by Jerry Reinsdorf, does make me worry about the future on how the White Sox are going to handle free agency. So I put I put up a poll, Jim, on Twitter. Which combo do you have more confidence in that could convince Jerry Reinsdorf to spend money in free agency? Because the Chicago Bulls with the NBA salary cap, they can spend outspend every team. They can offer two max contracts where no, I don't think anybody else in the NBA can. They can spend a lot of money, more money than anyone else, uh, but they haven't. And 91%, over 500 votes on Twitter, 91% picked Rick Conn and Kenny Williams could do a better job convincing Jerry Reinsdorf to spend money than Gar, Garpax with uh, the Bulls yeah, and their, their combo. That sounds fair. <laughs> <laughs> like the Jordan, the Jordan Bell thing, you know, they're selling the second round pick for three and a half million. I think that's the kind of thing where you just think, like, it's there, oh, they're, they'll cut every corner. Hey, man, you got to pay for Luis Roberts somehow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor Bulls fans. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, I always, you know, I, <laughs> that's the case where, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the Bulls sucks, especially Bulls fans who aren't Sox fans and, you know, that complaint that the, uh, Bulls fund the White Sox or, you know, the, the Sox are his favorite team and uh, the Bulls are the unwanted second kid. And like, it's like, that's, I've always been, you know, just shrugged at it, but that's the case when, when they did that, where just like, oh, you know, maybe it's, 
uh, you know, maybe that is true to a certain extent that the White Sox, you know, if you're not a, if you're not a White Sox fan, then you don't benefit at all from the, from the Bulls, uh, random accounts of penny Yeah, pension. and it's weird because they sell out all the time. The White Sox don't. The Bulls are a global brand, one of the top sports global brands in the world. The White Sox are not. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> if people have more confidence that the White Sox are going to spend money in free agency and not the Bulls, oh boy, I got really bad news if you're a Bulls fan because the White Sox don't spend enough money in free agency to be good. That's why we're here. A very long tangent, but John, again, terrific question. It is definitely something to think about and hopefully, knock on wood, that we don't have to deal or speak about all of these prospect injuries this year just because, man, it has been brutal for the White Sox in 2018. Terrific questions from everybody this week in P.O. Sox. Thank you guys so much for submitting questions. If you have a question or a topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. You can also help support the show by becoming a friend of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where you get an opportunity to ask questions to our guests and be able to listen to those questions, at least the answers to them on a special Patreon only edition of the podcast that's ad free that we upload into patreon.com and you receive also additional content from Jim's writing and also in Socks Machine Live. So if you're interested in getting more content from us, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up today to become a friend of the podcast. And that will do it for this edition of the Socks Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the show, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and the Google Play Music Store, which if you download the Google Podcast app, it's brand new, and you use Google Assistant to say, hey, Google, play the Socks Machine Podcast, it'll actually play. So a very new, cool and new feature that you can use for the show for those that are Android smartphone users. And the Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.